Well, in the Gospel of Luke, we learn something breathtaking, something unexpected, something that catches us off guard. In Luke chapter 23, Jesus is crucified, but he's not crucified alone. All four Gospels tell us that Jesus was crucified in between two others, one on his right, one on his left. Matthew and Mark identify these men as robbers. These were criminals who were being justly punished according to Roman law. But Matthew and Mark also mention how these two criminals insulted Jesus. As these two robbers faced their own death, they had the energy and the nerve to insult Jesus. And what were they saying? Matthew tells us they were saying the same things as the crowds. An angry mob of Jews had gathered around the cross and they were hurling insults at Jesus as he hung there. And they mocked him saying, let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. And the robbers were quick to join in on this. Now surely they were desperate for their own lives as they faced death. I mean, the thought that this person who was being crucified next to them could actually be the Messiah who could save them was preposterous. I mean, yeah, right. If you're the Messiah, save yourself and us. As the hours wore on, the criminals and the crowd fell silent. But at one point, one of the criminals piped up again. He had more to say, and we hear about him from Luke 23, verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. He was still angry and bitter. This supposed Messiah would just let himself and them die. What kind of a Christ, what kind of a Messiah was that? But at this point, the other robber tuned in. And this time he sounded a little different than before with what he was saying. Verse 40 says, But the other answered and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God? since you are under the same sentence of condemnation. And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. This is a change. Something happened. Something changed in this man and his view of Jesus. Both of these criminals surely knew who Jesus was. They knew what people were saying of him. They knew that he was the supposed Messiah. People were calling him the Christ. Maybe they heard some of his teaching. Maybe they witnessed a few miracles. But it wasn't until this criminal was hanging on the cross next to Jesus that he realized this man was truly innocent. He had done nothing wrong. The Jews and the Romans were falsely accusing him and crucifying him, while he, on the other hand, he was getting what he deserved. He was a guilty, sinful criminal. And he says, verse 42, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. Now, this is a huge change, and it's quite a statement of faith. I mean, he he is here actually now acknowledging Jesus as the Messiah, who even though he's about to die, is still going to come, come back in his kingdom. This is a complete 180. Before, he was literally denying Jesus as the Christ. And here, he is confessing him as the Christ. 
And though he was a guilty, sinful robber getting what he deserved, he had in this last moment of his life greater faith than those down below. And Jesus responds in verse 43, he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. And what a testament to God's grace and what a contrast. The religious the religious Jews, they strove after righteousness by works their entire lives. But they never attained it because they never approached God in faith. But here's this man, this common criminal who lived his entire life as a guilty, sinful criminal. Yet he finds eternal life, not because he earned it, and not because he deserved it, but because he cried out to the Messiah in faith. And so we have in Scripture one of the clearest and most powerful examples here of what's commonly called a deathbed confession. Is it possible to gain salvation in the last minute of life? If salvation is by works, then the answer is no. Because one minute is not enough time. One minute is not enough time to earn your way into heaven and to do enough good to get you into heaven. But if salvation is by grace, then yes, a minute is plenty of time. For a minute is all it takes for a person to finally be broken by their guilt and humbled by their sin and to cry out to God for mercy through Jesus. And that's what this robber did. He was finally broken and finally saved. And to those like this, God is just in saving them even in the last minute of their lives. <clears throat> so yes, it is possible to gain salvation in the last minute of life. But here's a question for you, another question you may not have thought of before. Yes, it's possible to gain salvation in the last minute of life. But is it possible to lose salvation? in the last minute of life. Is it possible for someone to be like the anti-thief on the cross? You have a person who is a godly believer their entire life, and in the last minute, though, they deny Jesus, and they turn from belief to disbelief, the exact opposite. Is this possible? Or even if it's not in the last minute of life, at any point in someone's life as a Christian, is it possible for one to possess eternal life, but then lose it. Some would say yes based on personal experience. I mean, after all, we all see and hear of people who leave the faith. Children grow up in the church only to go to college and abandon Christianity. Others go through some terrible difficulty in life. It's so hard that it just causes them to fall away. And some even leave the faith later in life. Charles Templeton, for example, converted to Christianity in 1936. Concerned by the state of post-Depression youth, he became a mass evangelist. This was an era in America where these huge, these large crusades were taking a hold, and Templeton was at the forefront. In 1946, he formed an evangelistic organization called Youth for Christ International, and they hired as their first full-time evangelist, Billy Graham. Templeton and Graham would become close friends and they would regularly speak together throughout the country, throughout the world, 
to thousands of people, and they saw many people come to Christ. But Templeton was wrestling with some issues. In particular, more and more scientists were saying the earth was billions of years old, but the Bible didn't say that, so which was true? In 1948, he attended Princeton Theological Seminary to get some answers. That only made things worse for him, though. Templeton knew he was harboring doubt in his heart, even though he was still preaching to thousands of people. And finally, in 1957, he publicly confessed his long struggle with doubt. He renounced Christianity and declared himself agnostic. He stated, quote, I believe that there is no supreme being with human attributes, no God in the biblical sense, but that all life is the result of timeless evolutionary forces over millions of years. He also stated, quote, I believe that in common with all living creatures, we die and cease to exist as an entity, end quote. His turn from biblical Christianity was full and complete. He entirely turned away. <clears throat> so some would ask, what do we make of people like Templeton? I mean, sure, there have been doubters forever. There always will be. But, but what do we make of people who once professed faith in Jesus and evidently seemed like they were saved, but then they turned away? Even someone like Templeton, who used to preach Jesus and the gospel to thousands. What do we make of people like that? I think we can all agree this is an important and practical question that relates to all of us. For if it is possible for others to lose their salvation, that means it's possible for me to lose my salvation. I would want to know about that. I would want to know what I can do about that. I mean, wouldn't you? Coming to salvation to the point where your sins are forgiven, your debt of guilt before God, it's gone. You have eternal life. You're secure. Coming to salvation, it's the greatest thing that can happen to you. But if it's possible to lose that salvation, nothing can so quickly deflate the hope, joy, and comfort believers have. Thankfully, though, Scripture teaches that no. Once you become a true believer, it is not possible for you to lose your salvation. The nature of saving faith is to endure forever. It is not possible to fall from grace, but as the saying goes, once saved, always saved. And this teaching that believers cannot lose their salvation is commonly referred to as the perseverance of the saints. And the Bible teaches that salvation is permanent. However, not all Christians believe this. Not all churches teach this as well. And just the other day, I was reading some of the doctrinal statements of some of our nearby local churches, and, and some believe that true believers can lose their salvation. One statement went so far as to say that even among a person who has experienced regeneration, meaning they've been born again, they may fall from grace and apostatize and be hopelessly and eternally lost. So at the very least, there are conflicting views out there. So that being the case, why do we assert the opposite, that you cannot lose your salvation? And then, 
If that's true, what do we make of people like Charles Templeton and others who sure seem to be saved, but then they abandon the faith? And if it's really true that you cannot lose your salvation, does this mean that if you're saved, you can you can sin as much as you want without any danger? Now, could a person go so far as to deny Christ, but still go to heaven? Because, hey, I mean, after all, once saved, always saved. So does that work? Still a lot of questions here. And let me tell you where we're going with this. As you know, on Sunday mornings, we're going through the book of Second Peter in the Bible, verse by verse. And last week, this issue of losing your salvation came up in regards to these false teachers. There were these people who appeared to be saved. They confessed Christ. They were in the church, but then they apostatized. They, they denied Jesus. They turned their backs on the faith. We learned about this in Second Peter chapter 2. What do we make of these people, though? I mean, did they lose their salvation? Last week, when we encountered the issue, we didn't have any time to get into it. We just didn't have the time. Peter's concern in chapter 2 is to help the churches identify and then reject false teachers. And so that's what we focused on last time. But I didn't just want to skip over the issue, sweep it under the rug, and move on. I mean, serious questions. What do we make of these false teachers? Did they lose their salvation? And more broadly speaking, can any believer lose their salvation? Since there are conflicting views out there, and since this issue will actually come up again later in Second Peter, I figured we would devote our entire time this morning to answering these questions. We're going to, in essence, take a little one-day break from Second Peter to peer more deeply into this issue of the permanence of salvation. So our goal this morning is to study the scriptures, find out what God really says about the permanence of salvation. Many, if not most Christians, have no idea what the Bible actually says about this or, or where to find it. But we are Berean Bible Church, after all. So far be it from us not to study the scriptures and, and at least find out what they say about this issue. And that's our goal today. We're going to begin with some, just some good old-fashioned Bible study and make our way through several verses just trying to answer this one question overall, can believers lose their salvation? And then later at the end, we're going to save some time, we'll return to Second Peter chapter 2, verse 1, and we'll try and get some answers about these false teachers, you know, this question that started it all. So I mentioned how this teaching that you cannot lose your salvation is commonly called the perseverance of the saints, meaning that if you're a true believer, you will persevere in the faith until the end. And we're going to talk about this idea of perseverance in a little bit. But understand this. Understand that your perseverance doesn't start with you. It starts with God. Your perseverance starts with God. Some people get this doctrine wrong because they fail to grasp this point. Namely, your work of perseverance is first enabled by God's work of preservation. Preservation. Believers 
persevere because God preserves. The ultimate reason believers cannot lose their salvation is because God himself uses his power to keep them in the faith. God himself promises to keep his true children in his kingdom forever. And nothing can stop God from keeping his own promise. And this is not something you have to take my word for. So now take, take your Bibles. We're going to look at several passages, but we're going to begin in John chapter 6. So take your Bibles, open them with me to the Gospel of John chapter 6. <clears throat> Here we see Jesus teaching the crowds. <clears throat> he just fed the 5,000. And now he has a horde of people following him. But why are they following him? Well, most of them just want another free meal. They want more bread. And so Jesus engages in some discussion before the crowds as to the difference between true followers and false followers. Let's look at a little bit of what he says. John chapter 6 and start at verse 37. To get us started. <clears throat> he says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. You often hear old preachers say, You just need to come to Jesus. You've got to have a come-to-Jesus moment. Just, just come to Jesus. And that's true. You do need to come to Jesus. But who is actually going to do that? It is all those whom the Father wills to give. You see, Jesus is just carrying out God's will and salvation here. He came down from heaven to do what? To do the will of God. And what is God's will in salvation? Look at verse 39, the next verse. He says, this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. Jesus will save and secure all those given to him by the Father. And how many will he lose? None. Zero. He says, I will lose nothing. Why? Because that's God's will. And he came to do God's will. In case you're not getting it, he makes it crystal clear in the next verse. He's talking about salvation. Look at verse 40 now. John chapter 6, verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. So it's not a, a mysterious passage. The language is plain. He says not some, not a portion, but he says everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him. He doesn't say they might have eternal life. They will have eternal life. Jesus will neither cast out nor lose a single soul that he saves he will see their salvation carried through to the very end. He says the resurrection. 
the last day. You have to understand that behind the perseverance of the saints is God's will. It is never God's will for true believers, those whom he saves, to lose that salvation. He will lose none. Now just turn the page to John chapter 10. Another very clear, very straightforward reference here, John chapter 10. That's a familiar passage, familiar metaphor that Jesus gives. John chapter 10, look at verse 14. He says, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. First notice, Jesus is the good shepherd. He knows his sheep. He is concerned about his sheep. And there's no confusion among Jesus as to who are are his sheep, who belongs to him, who doesn't. In his mind, you're either his sheep or you're not. And he knows the difference. Now look down at verse 24 of John chapter 10. Verse 24, the Jews gather around him. They were saying to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name. These testify of me. But, look at this, verse 26. But, he says, you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. Did you see that? Look closely in verse 26 at what he's saying. He did not say, you are not my sheep because you did not believe. No, he said, you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. What comes first? A person's belief or their status as his sheep. Their status as sheep comes first because, look, Jesus knows those who are his and those who will be given to him. And all of those, his sheep, they will come to believe. And now I'll get to the next verse, verse 27. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And, verse 28, I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now, what does Jesus say here about his sheep? He gives eternal life to them. And they will what? They will never perish. They will never perish. That's kind of what you expect if a person has eternal life. I mean, some people actually believe you can be saved. You can possess eternal life. You have it. You possess eternal life, but then you lose it. That doesn't sound very eternal to me. That sounds more like they possess temporary life, not eternal life. I mean, by definition, if you actually possess eternal life, you can't lose it. It cannot go away. It is eternal life. If you can lose it, either you didn't possess it or it wasn't eternal. But these people possessed eternal life. 
And if you have eternal life, you will, Jesus says, never perish. You know how in English you have double negatives? And when you have double negatives, they cancel each other out. You know what I'm talking about? Like if I were to say, you know, I do not, not like eating ice cream all the time. I'd really be saying, I, I like eating ice cream all the time. You know, double negatives in English, they cancel each other out, right? Not so in Greek. In Greek, when you put two negatives together side by side, they get stronger. And that's what this word never is in the Greek. It's actually two negatives. It's a double negative, never, in the Greek. And so emphatically, Jesus is saying in the strongest possible way that those who are his sheep, those to whom he gives eternal life, will never never perish. It's not possible. I mean, is that clear? Is that clear to you? And why is it that they will never, never perish? Because no one will snatch them out of his hand or the Father's hand. They're not even able to do so. There's no safer place to be than in the hands of God. In high school, they had this drill that they would put the running backs through on the football team. The running backs were given a football, and they were told to hold on to that football for an entire week. And they were either take it to class, take it to lunch, take it, to, take it home, everywhere. They were to hold on to that football with all their might, 24-7. For it was the mission of everyone else on the football team to try and knock the football out of their hands at any given moment. At any moment, someone could sneak up behind them in the hallway and just try and knock the ball out of their hands. And if the, if the running back ever loosened his grip and lost the football at any time throughout the week, he failed. And the purpose of this drill is pretty obvious. Trying to teach the running back to never let go of the football. You never loosen your grip on the football. Inevitably, though, they always did. They always lost throughout the week. But not so with God. It's not possible. There's no force in existence that can wrestle you from God's hands. No one can sneak up on God and and knock you free. Not Satan, not yourself, not even your own sin. So putting this together, the bottom line from John chapter 10, you can't be lost. Totally foreign here and elsewhere is this concept that a person can be a sheep and then later, not be a sheep. It just doesn't exist. Foreign is the idea that a person can have eternal life at some point, and then later they lose it. The sheep are the sheep, and nothing changes their status as sheep. And saying otherwise, just going against what Jesus himself said in John chapter 10. Now I want to show you a few more. So keep flipping to the right a couple books to the book of Romans, chapter 8. Just a little bit to the right, past Acts, and then get to Romans, chapter 8. And another familiar passage. Romans, chapter 8. We all know verse 28. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. But the next two verses, he expands on this calling and this purpose of our salvation. And I want to point you to Romans chapter 8, verses 29 through 30. 
Follow along, Romans 8, 29 through 30. Speaking of these saved, he says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. You know aircraft carriers? They're known to have the biggest chains in existence. You know, the big, they hold up the anchors. And just picture a chain where each link weighs 360 pounds. It's just one link of the chain. And when fully assembled, the breaking point of this chain is rated in excess of 2.5 million pounds. That's it's pretty unthinkable. But technically, that chain can still break. And technically, it can break. But not the chain mentioned in Romans 8. This chain is commonly referred to as the unbreakable chain. If God has planned and determined to save you, there's no stopping that. If you're foreknown, you're predestined, you're called, you're justified, you're glorified. It's a done deal. You can't break this chain. There's no such thing as a person who is foreknown, predestined, called, justified, and then lost, and then not glorified. The chain cannot be broken. God's chain of saving sinners cannot be broken, and this is why Paul treats glorification, which is that final step, he treats it as past, even though it's still future, because it's that certain for those who are saved. You will be glorified, which is to say you cannot lose your salvation if you have it. Remember, it's God's will and it's his power that is holding you up. It's like, it's like you're tightrope walking across the Grand Canyon like that guy just did, except that you're harnessed in so that even if you stumble, you can't fall. You're safe. And with salvation, God has you harnessed in. He started this work of salvation, and he will see it through, finished in you. Just read Philippians 1, verse 6 for you. It says that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. God began this work, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, and he will perfect it until the end, until the day of Christ Jesus. There's no interruption to that work. There's more. There's more verses, but I think we've seen enough already. True believers cannot lose their salvation because of God. It is against his will. It is against his power. It is against his plan. God will preserve those whom he saves. And if you get this, if you're, if you're following along, perseverance, it's really simple. Will believers themselves persevere? Of course. True believers will persevere in the faith because God will preserve them in the faith. Get this straight, though. This does not mean, however, that our role is passive. Although God will preserve us, this does not mean that our role of perseverance is passive. 
God still requires and commands that all believers hold fast to the faith and remain faithful their entire lives. Some people really abuse this truth of perseverance. We'll talk more about this later, but some people, they live like total unbelievers. But they say, hey, well, you know, I confessed Jesus when I was in high school and I got baptized, so I'm saved forever, right? It's true. If you are saved, you are saved forever. But the question with such people is, were you really saved to begin with? We'll come back to this concept later. But listen, God says that all true believers must and will continue strong and faithful in the faith their entire lives. And here, as with salvation itself, we see this balance between God's side and man's side. That we really are called to persevere. This is something we must do. Over and over again in Scripture, we are commanded to hold fast to the faith, to stand firm in the faith, to persevere into the end. That's our work. That is our responsibility, and we are held accountable to do so. But our work is enabled by God's work. That's that's how it works. This doesn't negate our responsibility to stand firm, but it puts things in perspective. Because if God didn't act, who could be saved? And if God didn't act, who could be secured? Overall, that is true. As the the saying goes, once saved, always saved. True believers, true believers cannot be lost by God. True believers will persevere, which means they will stay in the faith, confessing Christ, being faithful all their lives long. And this fact is so certain in Scripture that perseverance becomes the final mark of a true believer. It's, it's the final characteristic of a true believer. So you, you want to know a little secret? Do you want to know how you can tell if you're among the elect, if you are truly saved? Do you want to know how you can tell? Well, just die still confessing Christ, and you know. It's the ultimate proof, perseverance until the end. If you persevere until the end, that is proof positive that you were truly saved. You don't have to turn here. Listen to this verse. I'll read it for you. Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. And Paul writes, he says, Although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless, and beyond reproach, if, if indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. Verses 21 and 22 are great. They show God's sovereignty and salvation. I mean, you were alienated. You were hostile. You were evil. But God reconciled you in Christ and made you holy and blameless. But but look, how do you know if this is conclusively true of you? How do you know that God did this for you? He says, if you continue in the faith until the end. That is your ultimate assurance 
of your salvation. If you die as a believer, you're good to go. You have persevered. It's like Jesus himself said, it is the one who endures to what? To the end, who will be saved. Let me read you another verse. You don't have to turn here for the sake of time, but listen to Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. The writer of Hebrews says, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another, day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if, if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. I mean, look, these are real admonitions. You had better not fall away from the living God. You had better hold fast. There is a race of faith to run, and you had better cross the finish line. These are real, and these are real warnings. If you do fall away, you're going to be under judgment. If you do fall away, you should not feel safe. You have no reason to feel safe. Later in the book of Hebrews, in chapter 6 and in chapter 10, there are two very serious warning passages that warn against apostasy, which is falling away from the faith. And these are genuine warnings. They speak of professing Christians, those who are in the church. They know the gospel. They know Christ. They know who he is and what he did. They even experience some religion. But they fall away. And for such people, harsh judgment awaits. If you fall away, you should not feel safe and secure. You shouldn't. Such so-called Christians, as Paul would label them, are not losing their salvation. They are showing their true colors. They are revealing they were never truly saved to begin with. Such people, although they know the gospel, they know Jesus, but like Judas, their hearts are hardened and they fall away. And sadly, this happens more often than not in the church, doesn't it? We hear about people falling away, leave the church, stop being Christians, they turn away from the faith. But if you've been paying attention this entire time, the conclusion regarding such people who fall away, it's, it's rather obvious. When you have someone who convincingly claims to be a Christian, but later they abandon the faith by word or by deed, they're not losing their salvation. Rather, they're conclusively proving they were never saved to begin with. And this is how we explain people like Charles Templeton and, and many others. That no matter how Christian they seemed, even Judas deceived the disciples up until the very end. If they fall away from the faith and deny Jesus, they demonstrate for certain they were never born again. Isn't this exactly what Jesus taught in the parable of soils, by the way? I mean, do you remember that from Matthew 13? He's teaching that, you know, different people have different responses to the seed of the gospel. Some people, they appear to respond in, in true faith. It looks like it at first, and they look good. 
Some people, they start to look like Christians. They, they go to church, read the Bible. They start to, to sprout. But like the seeds sown in rocky soil or among thorny places, for one reason or another, he lists several different reasons, they fall away. They were never a true plant. They never bore fruit. Never had any real fruit. These people are not losing their salvation because you can't lose what you never had. But falling away, they're showing their true nature. They're showing what kind of soil they were. And they were never saved. You know, once again, this conclusion is not something you have to take my word for. Not only is it the only conclusion from the verses we've already looked at, but this conclusion itself is explicit in Scripture. Let me read for you 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. John is speaking of antichrists, which literally means people who are against Christ. He's talking about these people who left the church and they have turned against Christ. So he labels them antichrists. And what does he say about them in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19? He says, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. They were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. What's he saying? Their apostasy when these people left and turned against Christ was proof positive that they were never really one of us to begin with. And they were never saved. False believers can mimic true believers in what they say and do, but they eventually reveal their true nature when they live disobedient lives without repentance, when they disbelieve the truth, and when they fall away from the faith. And this is exactly the case, by the way, of the false teachers from Second Peter chapter 2. Now, we've come a long way. We've looked at a lot of verses. I think we can look at one more here. Let's go back to the verse that really started this all for us. One more verse. Turn your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 2. It's almost near the end of your Bible. Just go to Revelation, then start going backwards a little bit. 2 Peter chapter 2. Now that we've studied the word overall, let's return to 2 Peter and see what was going on with these false teachers. As we've already seen, Peter was trying to deal with these false teachers. They once were in the church. They once claimed to be Christians. They once professed Christ, but then they left. They turned away. They turned against Christ. Now they were teaching falsely and trying to draw others away. And Peter writes, especially in chapter 2, to guide the churches in identifying and rejecting these false teachers. But notice how he describes them in chapter 2, verse 1. He writes, false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Now this word for bought is a redemptive word. The same word is used of God redeeming us, buying us from the slave market of sin. So so does this mean that these false teachers were truly, truly redeemed by God, which is to say they were saved, but then they were unredeemed. They were lost when they denied Jesus. That was their question. 
Some people try and get around this, saying it's just a reference to unlimited atonement. You know, Jesus died for everybody, so he, he died for these false teachers. But the Bible never says that Jesus bought everybody, that he actually redeemed everyone. So what does this mean? A few things to consider. First, after studying the widest context possible, the Bible itself, we've already clearly seen that true believers cannot lose their salvation. And that's an important point for Scripture, which comes from God himself, like Peter just said in the previous verse, cannot contradict. We should not expect to see a contradiction. Second, whereas you would not expect Scripture to contradict itself, you definitely wouldn't expect the same author of Scripture to contradict himself. But Peter has already weighed in on this issue of perseverance. He's already made it clear several times in his writings that he believes believers cannot lose their salvation, but will be preserved and persevere until the end. Do you remember what we learned months ago in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5? If you like, you can, you can flip back and look at it. 1 Peter 1, look at verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. It's reserved. It's got your name on it. Verse 5, who are protected who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. I mean, I saved this verse for last because it's actually one of the clearest passages on preservation and perseverance. And Peter himself, he's not mixing words. He outright testifies, we will, perse- we will persevere because God protects and preserves us and will do so until the end. So now as we come back to an approach, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, you know we never aim to import meaning into the text. That's not what you should do. But we also do not expect God's word to contradict. And indeed it does not. We find here Peter is not saying these false teachers were truly saved, but he's using what is called phenomenological language, which just means he's writing based on what you can see. He's describing these false teachers based on appearances. And by all outside appearances, they appeared that they were bought. And here's a key point, a very key point. Remember, these these false teachers, as teachers, once coming from the church, they would have identified themselves as what? Like Peter, like all the apostles, they would have identified themselves as slaves of Christ. Remember? a common way of identifying yourself as a Christian, a slave of Christ. And calling yourself a slave of Christ makes Jesus your master who bought you. And this was their profession. At one point, they actually claimed they were slaves of Christ and Jesus was the master who bought them. From the outside, this is what they claimed. At some later point, they went back on their word. They denied Jesus as their master who bought them, and they turned away? Did they lose their salvation? Were they bought 
saved and then lost? Is Peter teaching that they lost their salvation? No. In reality, they were going back on their claims and Peter drives the force of this home to show the audacity of the false teachers. I mean, they once actually claimed Jesus as their Lord and Master who bought them, but now they denied him. In no clear language could Peter warn the churches that they were dealing with hardened apostates. That's who these false teachers were. They were like Judas. Perfect example. Everyone thought Judas was a true disciple. But in the end, he showed his true nature. He was hardened in unbelief, and he fell away. Judas denied the master who supposedly bought him. And so it is with these false teachers. They fell away because they were never truly saved to begin with. Now we're going to see more on this whole issue of perseverance a little bit later in Second Peter. And I trust, I hope, the whole goal of today was that this groundwork that we laid will prove useful and profitable again in the future. It will come up again, and I think it will be useful, everything we've studied today, again. But we're not quite finished here, because I don't want you thinking that everything we covered today was just an intellectual exercise, because it's not. This teaching on the perseverance of the saints is incredibly practical, and it's actually important for your daily lives. And I want to spend a little bit of time now before we end just to show you this. I want to round off this this study on perseverance by showing you how to apply it. A few applications of the preservation and perseverance of the saints. Can we do this now? A few ways to apply this. First, take comfort. First, take comfort. If you believe in Jesus... If he is your Lord and master and you follow him, take comfort. You are safe in him. More than safe, you're secured. The God of the universe is behind your salvation. Nothing can stop that or get in the way. Not even your own sin. Some Christians, when they sin, and look, we know you shouldn't sin, but when they sin, they get so discouraged, they think God God hates them. And that sooner or later, he's just going to get so fed up with them, he's going to unsave them. That can't happen. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ, not even your own sin. Remember Romans 5, verse 8? Look, God saved you while you were an ungodly sinner. Do you really think he's going to unsave you because every now and then you, you sometimes act still? like an ungodly sinner? If you're in Christ by faith, just remember nothing can separate you from the love of God. It's not good or okay to sin. If you sin, repent, turn again to Christ, but take comfort. Take comfort. The Savior can't let you go. He will never let you go. At the same time, secondly, keep running. First, take comfort. Secondly, keep running. Just because you're secure in Christ doesn't mean you can stop. You still have to persevere, like we talked about. You still have to contend for the faith. You still have to run the race, and you have to cross that finish line. 
And that is your responsibility. Even when the going gets tough, you must not fall away, but, but draw closer to God and press on. God enables us to run. He's going to carry us to the finish line, but he still calls us to run with endurance. He's pleased when we do so. So, do so. Passionately pursue Christ. Do so in holiness. I mentioned a little bit before, some people, they really abuse the idea of perseverance. They falsely think they can embrace a life of sin with a carefree attitude because, hey, you know, once saved, always saved, right? So they, they live it up in their sin and they think they're good to go. Now, how many people have you encountered who call themselves Christians, but they don't go to church, they don't really read or heed God's word, they're not really growing in godliness, they're not bearing fruit, they're pretty much living in unrepentant sin, but they think they're perfectly squared away with God because, look, they prayed the sinner's prayer 10 years ago. Or one year at camp, you know, they walked down the aisle and, and they got baptized. They got saved. They had an experience in junior high. So, you know, hey, once saved, always saved. They heard that. They think they're good to go. Their lives never really changed. And now they basically live in a manner that's indistinguishable from unbelievers. But they still think they're going to heaven because once saved, always saved. If you know someone like this, or if you are someone like this, beware and be warned. When you have a so-called Christian who is indistinguishable from an unbeliever and who lives in unrepentant, continual sin, that's a telltale sign of a false conversion. It's true. It really is true. You never have to worry about losing your salvation. You never have to worry about losing salvation. But if this is you, you may need to worry about whether or not you were ever truly saved to begin with. Were you truly born again? Are you? I mean, true salvation is extreme when, when God makes you alive. It's not a small change that takes place. He, he radically changes and reorient, reorients your entire life and your desires. And you should be different as a result. So are you? And this leads us to a third and final application of everything we've learned. Examine yourself. Examine yourself. I mean, do you want to be deceived into thinking you're safe when you're not? Then examine yourself and your faith. Make certain you're believing and relying upon the true gospel. This is something we're told to do, by the way. This is a command, 2 Corinthians 13.5. Examine yourself, test yourself to see whether you're in the faith. This is a good thing to do. We're told to do this. It keeps you aware of your sin. It keeps you reliant upon Christ. It keeps you from falling away. So examine yourself, examine your faith all the time and let that just continually turn you back to Christ, always. Take comfort. Keep running. Examine yourself. Just a few ways to apply the truths of God's preservation and our perseverance. Ultimately, though, I think the, the grand application of all things is worship. At the end of the day, God gets and deserves all of the glory. It's, it's his love and his power that saves us and secures us to begin with. 
So I pray as you leave here reflecting on these truths that you can ultimately respond to God be the glory. Let me finish by reading you the closing verses of Jude and listen and see the perseverance and God's glory come together. Jude writes, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Lord in heaven, we echo this prayer of Jude and we say to you be the glory. You and through your Son, Christ, and the Spirit as well are worthy of all praise and adoration and thanksgiving. You're the God of all power. You're the God of all blessing. You're the God of our salvation. And you're the God of our preservation as well. We thank you for these truly treasured truths that you will never let us go. We are in Christ and we turn to him by faith for our forgiveness, for our salvation. And if that is true of us, we are secure in you. At the same time, Lord, though, Lord, you call us to persevere and give us grace. We know we're all too weak. We're too weak to run the race. We're too weak to endure and to persevere into the end. Even for this, we call upon you for grace and strength. Still, Lord, let us not neglect our responsibility to run, to stand firm, and to passionately pursue the Lord our entire lives long. We do this for your glory. We do this because we love you, and we thank you, and we long to be with the God who holds us in his hands. In your name we pray. Amen.